Welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, September 3rd, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Jenna Tessa Fox. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Jenna Tessa Fox. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose, whose articles have appeared at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. Jenna, welcome and uh, hello on a Sunday morning. Hello on a Sunday morning. Hello. Uh, Michael is away on vacation this uh, Labor Day weekend. Uh, so, Jenna, thank you for stepping in for Michael. We appreciate that. Always a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. With us today, we have a very special guest. Ariana DeBose is with us. Broadway fans know Ari from Bring It On the Musical, Motown the Musical, Pippin. We also know her from some show named Hamilton and The Bronx Tale, uh, A Bronx Tale the Musical. I always call it The Bronx Tale, but it's A Bronx Tale the Musical. <laughs> and she's uh, also going to be appearing in concert uh, with the Luke Frazier American Pops Orchestra coming up on September 16th. So Ari, thanks for getting up on a Sunday morning. It's not Saturday morning, Sunday morning, and chatting with us. Mm. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So give us a little background on you. I mean, it looks like um, your Broadway career uh, began with Bring It On the Musical. Uh, tell us where you're from and how you got to Bring It On. Oh, goodness. I'm uh, originally from North Carolina. I uh, I call Raleigh my hometown, the Raleigh-Wake Forest area. And I started dancing when I was three. I was really focused on dancing. I wanted to dance, 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 dance. Um, and so I trained vigorously. And when I entered high school, I discovered a little thing called theater. <laughs> and uh, I think... Uh, my first like big part was Aida and Aida, and I had no idea what I was doing. This lovely man, um, Broadway veteran Eric Scotto, uh, cast me as Aida, and I had to figure out how to sing and how to talk. And that's when my focus sort of switched. I was 16, I think. And um, then I had the good fortune to meet Terrence Mann and Charlotte Dumbois, and they took me under their wing and sort of shepherded me, shepherded me up to New York City. <laughs> Oh, wow. That goes uh, North Carolina. Surely uh, Terrence and, and Charlotte have that the school down there that they, they teach at. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. that, so you came to New York, and uh, how did you land Bring It On? 
um, a series of very long auditions. <laughs> um, I swear, I think the audition process just gets longer and longer and longer. I think I auditioned like four times over the span of two months for that show. Wow. Um, and I actually, I'd been in New York for three months, so I was very fortunate. I didn't have to wait too long to get a project. But um, I had auditioned and booked a couple of other things but I wanted to see how Bring On panned out. Um, and I ended up doing that. I was very, very lucky. That process, I believe, was very complicated for the creative team, um, trying to find the right pieces and people who were, um, you know, really, really active and, and, and strong athletes in addition to being um, young artists. <laughs> so um, I was very fortunate. But yeah, that was a hard, that was a hard moment. I don't know if I've had an audition that was, that has been as challenging since. <laughs> Considering how physical the, the show is, uh, was a lot of the auditions focused on the cheerleading and the physicality? They definitely um, sectioned it off. So you went through rigorous dance rehearsals um, that included a some tumbling skills, which I did not have. <laughs> um, and then if you made it past that round, they put you in cheer camp. They're a version of cheer camp. And um, I went through two rounds of that. I didn't have to do much, but I, I had to base and I had to, I ended up flying in the show, um, which was kind of hard for me. I'm scared of heights. <laughs> so uh, that was a, a fun experience. <laughs> Had you ever thought about trying out for a cheerleading when you were in high school? Oh, no. I liked sitting on the sidelines and cheering with them. I was more of the marching band type of girl. Mm -hmm. I did the color guard, and, and I, I played clarinet in the band. Uh, so, you know, that was more my speed. <laughs> uh, and Bring It On was more physical than Pippin? It seemed like Pippin was tremendously physical. It was tremendously physical in a different way. Um, that was challenging because I'd never touched a trapeze before. And I certainly never saw myself, you know, spinning on one above people dancing below you. Um, so that was great. Did you ever go on as Diana Ross in Motown? Um, um, uh, come again? Did you ever go on as Diana Ross in Motown? Oh, Absolutely. I went on quite frequently, actually. Um, the first time I went on was uh, the week of the Tonys mm -hmm. that year. And my dresses weren't finished. My wigs were not done. So there was it was fast and furious. And I don't think I had a proper put in either. So I just winged it. And thankfully, no one died. And the people <laughs> stood and they cheered. So <laughs> I was like, That's, I'll count that as a massive success. <laughs> Uh, since you're a reasonably young person, what did Diana Ross mean to you? In fact, did you know who she was? Uh, did you have to study her very closely uh, as an understudy or what? Sure. I grew up listening to her music. My grandmother. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. My grandmother played her her music and, you know, the Shirelles and basically the music of the 60s is, is mm -hmm. what we drove down the highway listening to. Mm -hmm. um, so I was pretty well versed in, in her repertoire. <laughs> um, but I did do some research just because I, I don't think I had, and I, I certainly did not have an understanding of just how hard it was to become an, an artist of color 
back then and to be successful and um, just the sacrifices you had to make and how you they would put themselves in in harm's way at times just to be able to perform. Um, so now, that that brought a new level to it. Now, uh, given that Lin Manuel Miranda's had such success, people tend to forget that he was actually involved with Bring It On. <clears throat> and so, was your being involved with Bring It On a factor in your getting into Hamilton? Oh, absolutely. That Bring It On was my two-year audition for Hamilton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I actually I don't think I would have gotten Hamilton had I not done Bring It On, and I was you know very fortunate. I I was brought in very early in the process for Hamilton. I did some unofficial readings before the official reading, um, so I never actually had to set foot in an audition room for that show. It was the first time that ever happened to me in my career. It was a direct offer, and it's the best direct offer I've ever gotten. <laughs> um, what were those yeah, early readings like? Oh, they were electric um, because no one knew what was going on, but we knew it was special. And, you know, that was back when the room where it happens was a 15 minute song. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was intense. I will say satisfied has not changed much <laughs> from that time. But, um, you know, I was around when uh, uh, he was first forming Mar- Mariah Reynolds which I think is, is, was very exciting for me. Um, and I just remember looking at him and saying, you know, I don't think I'm right for any of these actual roles, but I just want to be considered to be in the room. So just call me, okay? And he was like, okay, <laughs> if that's what you want. I was like, yes, that's what I want. <laughs> and then uh, you yeah. changed gears, left Hamilton, and went on to A Bronx Tale, the musical. Um uh, what, how long were you involved with The Bronx Tale before it came to Broadway? Um, I was only involved with The Bronx Tale when it came to Broadway. Well, that's that's untrue. I had done some early readings of the show when it was first getting on its feet. Um, and that was back when I was still doing Motown. Um, uh, in fact, I was doing Motown, and then I had done the reading of A Bronx Tale. And then after I finished the reading of A Bronx Tale, I did the reading of Hamilton. So that was, I guess, when all those seeds were sort of planted for me. It's a very fertile time. I'm really grateful. Um, but those readings at the time were, there were just maybe 10 of us in a room back then. I think Adrian Warren was playing Jane, and I was just Jane's friend. Uh, and so when they called, um, it was around Tony time for uh, Hamiltoni, as they refer to it now, um, and they called and said, would you be interested in meeting with Jerry Zachs? And I said, meeting with him? <laughs> I was like, do I, have, do I have to sing? Do I have material? They're like, we'll send some stuff over for you to look at, but don't stress out about it. And I was like, okay, I'd love to meet Jerry Zachs. <laughs> um, you know, and then we ended up doing the material and talking about the character. And they put me on tape a little bit. Um, and sent it to the rest of the team, and that's how I got the job. Hmm. So uh, uh, you go from Hamilton to a Bronx Tale musical, and uh, you just wrapped up uh, your run in a Bronx Tale, didn't you? I did. It was it was lovely. It was a lovely evening, um, and a really great celebration with my people. I love them. They're fantastic. <laughs> 
so in in reflecting back upon the whole uh, ongoing rage that Hamilton is and that you were in the middle of uh, of this phenomena uh are you have you been able to put some distance between you and Hamilton now that you've been in another show since it and you can look from the outside uh, yes in a way i mean it's it will always be hard to describe what that process was i always say to Renee Goldsberry i was like it's going to take us a decade to really understand what happened during that time um but you know the fans are are very loyal i i have some lovely hamill fans who have come see, to see a bronx tale and 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 they're they're so sweet and supportive that's what i've i took away from hamilton is that our fans are lifers quote unquote and um they want to see where we go next which i think is really cool um, but it's uh it's it's still it's still very hard to describe what exactly went on. We we changed we changed the world in a way and and that was something that I had said I wanted to do, sort of, you know, off the cuff. Didn't think much of it and then somehow this amazing, amazing piece of art landed in my lap. <laughs> so in the uh in the next week or so, you're heading down to Washington, D.C. to uh, work with the American Pops Orchestra, uh, conducted by Luke Frazier, and you are going mm-hmm. to be doing uh, a celebration of the 75th birthday of a music legend named Aretha Franklin in a an evening called Respect, the Music of Aretha Franklin. So, how, what we, you know, did you grow up listening to Aretha? I know we just talked about Diana Ross. Yeah, she was definitely in that group of women, um, that shaped, that shaped me. Um, I always thought her sound was so unique. You know, she, when you heard her voice, you knew it was Aretha. She sounded unlike anyone else. Um, and she, she did her own thing. You know, she wasn't under that Motown label. Um, and I, I really respect her for that. She's always, um, stood her ground and sung music she wanted to sing. Um, and supported causes she wanted to support. And I think that's the beautiful display of strength um, from a woman during that time. So I'm really excited to go do this. <laughs> How did you end up uh, getting this gig? Uh, a friend of a friend, um, Kelly Dumbois, um, uh, works down there with Luke all the time. Kelly has known me since I was 16. Um, she is uh, Charlotte Dumbois's sister-in-law. And she she called me up one day and she said, hey, I met this guy named Luke. We're collaborating on some things and you need to know each other. And then Luke called me and we met for coffee in New York. And he said, I have this this thing that I want to do. And I said, well, I think you're great. So I'll do anything you ask me to do. And fortunately, it worked out. And it was this Aretha Franklin tribute. Um, and it just seemed a perfect fit for the moment, you know. Um, and I was lucky enough to have some time off. <laughs> to do it so so uh do you know what you're going to be singing yet i do um i don't want to spoil anything okay but i Uh am very excited um chain of fools is one of my favorite songs that she that she released and i do get the, the the honor of doing my own version of that song so i think that's something people can look forward to we're singing all her hits like 
you know, singing. And, and we have this incredible trumpet player, Bria Gomberg, who is going to do her own rendition of, of Aretha's, Aretha's tunes as well. So I think, I think it's going to be an amazing night. And you also are going to be sharing the stage with uh, Michelle Williams of Destiny's Child, Amoya Angela, mm-hmm. and Nova Payton, and you mentioned Brea Skonberg. Uh, Skonberg, mm-hmm. excuse me. Um, okay. So uh, when are you heading down to get into rehearsal for that? Um, it's Fast and Furious, so I head down on the 15th. I get in very early that morning. We put the show together, and then we're on at 8 p.m. on the 16th. And that's going to be at the arena stage uh, at the Mead Center for the American Theater on uh, 6th Street mm-hmm. Southwest uh, on September 16th. Um, so you're going to wrap that up. It's a one-night-only thing. And then uh, are mm-hmm. you taking a break or you uh, have other stuff in the hopper you, uh, you can tell us about? I I do have other things in the works. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I can't talk about them yet. Sure. Uh, yeah, but absolutely. I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm very excited about my upcoming projects, and I hope they will be announced soon. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well, we totally uh. understand that. We have to wait for those announcements, or people get really cranky. Yeah. So, isn't that unfortunate? It's very unfortunate. <laughs> so, Ariana, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us uh, about what's going on. Uh, listeners can. Uh, catch up with Ariana at uh, Ariana DeBose on Twitter and Twitter and Instagram. We'll have links to that in the show notes. And um, after those things are announced, please come back and tell us more about them, okay? I would love to. Thank you for having me this morning. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. Webster Uh, Peter, you got down to the Fleas New Theater on Thomas Street, which we'll have to talk about that for a second, and saw Inanimate. So tell us about Inanimate. Well, uh, this is about a woman who's in love with a pole. I don't mean that she's in love with a Polish man. I mean she's in love with a pole. Well, really she isn't. She's in love with a Dairy Queen sign. We don't see the sign. We only see the pole that holds it up. I know this must sound a little bit odd to some people who don't know about this condition called objectus sexualis, objectum sexualis. But um, it is a real thing where people fall in love with uh, objects. The most famous example is Erica Eiffel. She was really born Erica Debris, but um, she married the Eiffel Tower. I don't know who conducted the ceremony. I don't know how the Eiffel Tower said, yes, uh, I do. But um, anyway, uh, she has taken this on. Now, Nick Robodeau has written a play about a woman named Erica, not Erica Eiffel, but uh, a, a woman named Erica who is having a lot of problems because of this, because she tells her employers that she does this, uh, has this, these feelings for this poll, and uh, they fire her because, after all, um, she seems crazy to them. What's wonderful about Nick Robodeau's play is that uh, he doesn't make 
make fun of her. He doesn't make her look silly. It's it's not a farce. He takes it very seriously. What's bad about Nick Robodeau's play is that he doesn't give us any explanation why this could possibly have happened. And we have to go back to Equus because Peter Schaffer while driving down a street one day, heard on the radio a story of a boy who had blinded horses. My God, he thought, why would anybody do this? What could possibly be the reason? So he came up with something about um, a boy who had a, a religious mother who put a picture of Jesus by his bed and the father who was not a believer, a total atheist, who hated the idea that there was a picture of Jesus by the kid's bed and replace it with a picture of a horse. But the kid was so little that he assumed that horse was a substitute for God. And he had been told that God judges you if you do anything wrong. So therefore, when a girl many years later took him into a stable to have sex with him, um, he couldn't do it because God was watching him, all these gods, in fact, and as a result, that's why he went crazy and and blinded them. Now, that may seem far-fetched, but certainly um, it's an explanation, and Equus wound up winning a Tony and becoming a sensation. Um, it, It moved to Broadway. I don't think this play will, because all this play does for 85 minutes is put the situation in front of us and with no possible explanation why it happened. And that's the real crux of the matter. Why do people fall into this condition? Let's hear why. Please explain it to us. And if you can't, I don't think you should just write a play about it, even though you do it with integrity. And it's directed with integrity, too. And um, certainly Lacey Allen, the young woman who plays the role of Erica, is sensational in giving us all that she can possibly give us that's on the page. I wish she could give us more, but Dink Robodeau didn't give her more to give us, so that is the real problem. Now, this is at the Fleas Theater basement space. It's a very small space. Um, I imagine it's a second space since it's down the basement, um, but this is the first uh, play to inaugurate this uh, new theater on Thomas Street. It's um, It seems like a very clean, nice, uh, brand spanking new space, but I can't say anything for the other two theaters, one of which I suspect is the main stage. Um, I can't believe that this reasonably tiny theater is the main stage. So um, it's on Thomas Street, which is not the easiest place to get to. Uh, the Q train and um, the one train um, are your best bets. So um, maybe the two and three, I I took the one. But anyway, uh, once you get there, allow about 10 minutes walk because it's not around the corner from uh, any subway stop. So and it doesn't look like the type of street with his easy parking either. So uh, we'll have to wait and see what the flea does next, frankly, because um, this one isn't a must see experience at all. So the flea has this uh, has has buck the trend and been able to raise enough money and build a new theater uh, off-Broadway and trying to make it happen there. Uh, yes, that's so wonderful. That's, that is uh, unbelievable. And uh, from the Fleas website, they've had um, whoever is running their fundraising efforts is doing a bang-up job. You bet, you bet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which nobody because, can deny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I look forward to uh, their main stage production, and we'll uh, see what happens there. Uh, Have you read uh, Isaac Butler's essay about the flea and about uh, the problems that they have paying the bats, their uh, resident team of actors? This is done by the bats, in fact. 
oh, this is a bad, this is a bad production. So uh, Isaac wrote about how um, the flea has an interesting business model where um, people pay to be part of their acting company rather than people getting paid to be in their acting company. And uh, it's... Yes, well, they, you know, they have, children's yeah. theaters all over the country have been doing this for a long time. Uh, and uh, it does seem to be an onerous thing for people have to have to take on. It's just another way of showing that everybody wants to be in show business because um, certainly uh, many plays show up at theaters. I can think of an off-Broadway musical right now that showed up at a theater that I'll bet had to do with um, the production paying to be there. That happens a lot. So um, I guess it's extended now to actors in New York City that uh, if you want to perform, uh, how much is it worth to you? It's very sad. But uh, with the population growing and expenses growing, too, in producing shows, it really isn't astonishing that this is happening. It's sad, but it's not shocking. Yeah, I mean, it's a very slippery slope. We also have many many casting directors in New York who give, quote-unquote, audition classes, and you're, in essence, paying to audition for, you know, whatever the casting director happens to be casting. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a darker side of, of this, but if people are walking in with eyes wide open and understanding that this is the deal there, that they are... Uh, I'm not sure how that is different than a bunch of people getting together and saying, uh, you know, it's all chip in a hundred bucks to rent a space and do um, do, a, do a show for one or two nights... Uh, this is a more formalized version of it, and certainly, as we just mentioned, the flea has been able to gather enough enough investors to build a theater. So, uh, why can they uh, not pay these actors that that are quote unquote bats, which is part of their resident company? I think you, I think you may have answered your own question because they are building a theater. Um, you know, what I always say under these circumstances, though, is when Bill Gates started his. Uh, Quest, you know, he lost money for years. Um, he invested in himself. Um, Ted Turner, all of them. Every person who tries to make something of himself winds up losing money initially. And the whole point isn't to invest in yourself and hope that you get it back. And, you know, so many stories do involve the fact that if you stay with it and you do spend the money and, and assume that you will lose money for a while, that the, eventually the real money will come to you. So uh, I won't say that that's a hard and fast rule by any stretch of any imagination, but it has been known to happen that way. We must remember that the titans of industry were not titans once upon a time, but were probably sleeping in their own offices and not having a home or, or anything like that. So, uh, so keep that in mind, too. It might be a good investment to be able to be seen on a stage. All right. So let's move forward. Uh, Jenna, you uh, jumped in a car or took some sort of transportation mood to get up to Long Wharf. Uh, where you saw the beginning of the uh, national tour of Small Mouth Sounds. Uh, so tell us about Small Mouth Sounds. Uh, Small Mouth Sounds. I never got to see this off-Broadway, which I really regretted because I heard a lot of people saying a lot of very positive things about it. So a friend of mine was doing the production. He's in the tour, and I wanted to go 
finally see the show and, of course, see him. So, uh, yes, took Metro North out to uh, New Haven for an evening. Uh, the play is written by Bess Wall, directed by Rachel Chavkin, who, of course, right now is uh, represent or not for much longer on Broadway, represented by Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812. Uh, the play follows these six damaged people who come together at a week-long spiritual retreat where they are told at the beginning of their first session that they are expected to stay as silent as possible and that silence is going to help them find who they are and answer their their problems, answer their questions and whatever their, whatever their unique quests and questions are. So over the course of this week, they form friendships and connections, and bit by bit, we begin to learn about the challenges they're facing, why they've come to this retreat, but it's primarily silent, and it's all done through uh, visual means, through gestures and through facial expressions, and they're whole scenes with no dialogue at all and sometimes barely audible sounds from the actors. And we can see how the silence is helping them or not helping them as they're sorting through their problems. And Rachel Chavkin's direction for this play is very much like her work on Natasha Pierre. It's incredibly precise and it's focused just as much on what the audience sees as what we hear, which I think is really fascinating. And I thought it was a really neat way of uh, telling a story. Obviously, in theater, visuals are terribly important. But in this play, I can't even imagine how a blind audience member could appreciate it. Uh, in some ways, the play reminded me of a ballet with the actors using their bodies and their faces more than their voices to create their characters. And this obviously puts a lot of pressure on the actors to work together in some very different, complex ways that are really fascinating to watch as uh, as the characters evolve and develop. Uh, the actors, uh, Connor Barrett, Ben Beckley, Edward Chin Lin, Orville Mendoza, who's only a voice of the teacher, so where everyone else... Uh, doesn't speak very much. He is only speaking. We don't see him until the curtain call. Uh, Brenna Palugi, Socorro Santiago, and Shireen Snow, uh, they all do wonderful work together. And again, it's almost balletic in the way they move and convey emotion and tell the story primarily in silence. They do really lovely work. They work beautifully uh, individually and as a team to move the story along. It never lags. It never feels like it, it never loses energy, even when we're just watching a character looking at a photograph. And uh, it's still an incredibly intense, powerful moment to see a character sit there completely still looking at a picture. And it's really, you know, I can't praise this uh, acting team enough. They did a really lovely job together. Uh, the show is running through September 24th at Long Wharf, stage two. Uh, then moves to uh, ACT in San Francisco from October through December, uh, broad stage in Santa Monica, California for January, uh, the AT&T Performing Arts Center in Dallas for four days uh, in uh, late January, early February, the Arsht Center in Miami from uh, sorry, from February 16th to March 4th, and then Philadelphia Theater Company from March 13th to April 1st. So it'll be all over the country, and I really hope people take advantage. And if you missed it off-Broadway, go see this version. I don't know 
if uh, Laura Jelinek's set or uh, Andrew Schneider's video projections or Mike Inwood's lighting is the same as the off-Broadway production, since I didn't uh, I didn't see that version. But uh, they do beautiful work with the lighting and visuals in the background and the sound. All of it just really works very nicely. So it's a very thought-provoking, intense, powerful evening of theater and uh, really well done. And I hope it uh, I hope the tour does very well. So we talked with uh, Bess Wall on uh, this week on Broadway back in October 2016 about uh, her writing and uh, small mouth sounds when it was off Broadway. If anybody would like to go back and listen to that interview, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And uh, great. All right. So, Peter, you got down to the Cherry Lane Theater and you saw If Only. So tell us, what is If Only? Well, we've all had this experience where we've had a lover in the past and we haven't seen the person for a long time. And then we have a situation where we meet again. And I don't necessarily mean running into each other. I mean a situation where one person invites the other um, out to lunch, uh, let's just catch up, you know, that type of thing. And what is the motivation here? And what is the hope behind each person's uh, mind? Uh, is it a case where we're just going to be friends, if that is by any chance possible? Is it a, is each person or is one person hoping that the relationship will start again? Well, you know, these are, these are good questions, and it's a tense situation when this happens which is one of the reasons why if only is staged in such a way that most of the time you are looking at two people facing each other in chairs a, a more distant distance than usually people sit yes there's a coffee table between them but there's also a couch there between them and why aren't they sitting on the couch or will they sit on the couch why aren't they sitting on the couch well because maybe one or both of them doesn't want to start the relationship again um now all this is complicated by the fact that we're actually in 1901 and these people were lovers back in the late 1860s and in fact they were introduced by no less than Abraham Lincoln. And to complicate matters further, she's white and he isn't. He's black and he was once a runaway slave. He's a very educated man. He teaches history now. Um, <clears throat> and uh, what are the sexual sparks that are flying here, if there are any at all? We get the impression he's more interested in starting a relationship than she. And... After all, she is a married woman. The playwright does a spectacularly good job in doing something that most playwrights don't do. And my hat is off to Thomas Klingenstein for doing it. When, we, when the play opens, we actually see the husband. And we get the impression he's very much in love with his wife. They're not in sync. I will admit that. She's playing Scott Joplin music as the play begins. He comes in and he takes it off the record player. Not a nice thing to do. Um, so immediately we think, okay, you know, they're not getting along. Then, um, but even though the next sequence proves that again, 
it's an interesting one because what happens is he talks about your birthday's coming up. I want you to go down to the jewelry store and we'll pick out a nice ring for you. And she says, um, well, you know, um, it'd be so much better if you were surprising me. Well, yeah, but if I surprise you, I might get you something you don't like. And then you'd only take it back. So why don't we just um, avoid that situation and come down with me and you'll pick out something. Now, both people have a point. You know, nobody's a bad guy here, you know, and that's very good. And we really do get the impression he loves his wife, especially when he says, I, it's nice that you're having a visitor. Whether or not he knows that um, they had an affair before is another story. But but he does know that it's a black man who's coming. And this is 1901, you know, so uh, he's a good guy. So the point is, it's not one of those plays where we're rooting for the couple from way back when to get together again, because she's in such a loveless, horrible marriage. No, she isn't. And that makes the situation extraordinarily interesting. Well, uh, why is the play called If Only? I'm not sure I should give that away, really. But there is a good reason that comes up in the last few minutes. And it's certainly has to do with Abraham Lincoln. So who's in it? Well, um, once upon a time, she was in a little house in the prairie. Now she's in a little house in the city. And that's Melissa Gilbert. It's a role that Francis Sternhagen would have taken about 20, 30 years ago. And um, there are flashes of Francis Sternhagen in this very, very fine performance. And um, in the other role that's so important, of course, is an actor named Mark Kenneth Smaltz. Very good as well. Nice and eloquent, uh, stately, dignified, uh, a real uh, prize of a man. And uh, that makes the competition substantially stronger as well. I'm not saying it's a masterpiece, but I will say that the playwright does a lot of things right that a lot of playwrights do wrong. So uh, this is in not in the Cherry Lane, by the way. This is in the Cherry Lane second space, which is a very small space. I doubt that this, it can seat 50. Um, it, it is reserved seats. It is a situation with comfortable seats, I'm happy to say. Um, but if you're interested, um, I guess you better call quickly because this is a theater that if it's going to sell out, will sell out quickly. And I did hear as I was leaving people saying, oh, I grew up with Little House on the Prairie. It's so wonderful to see Melissa Gilbert again. So you might have some competition from those um, prairie heads, so to speak. So, um, so uh, you know, it, I, I don't know if there's a future for this play. Um, it is quiet. A lot of people um, are taking issue. A lot of the critics I've seen have taken issue with the fact that you have to watch them uh, facing each other, and you're only seeing their profiles for much of the night. But there's good reason for it. And um, while I didn't like Christopher McElroy's direction at the beginning of the play, because Melissa Gilbert is reading aloud, but of course that's always a clunky device when people read aloud, and you know that if they're in the at home, they don't do that. I mean, granted, there's a little child she's adopted, or at least taken in, who's there, but she's not reading to the kid, she's reading to the brick wall, and I mean, like, is it a case that talking to the kid is like talking to a brick wall? I don't know. But otherwise, you know, they, the fact that they face each other, uh, and we only see their profiles for, I'd say, mm, um, 90% of the time they're together is is understandable. So, um, so if only... Um, yeah, and not a bad night at all. So, uh, I never consider myself a, uh, a prairie head, 
but I guess I am. So. <laughs> you watched it when you were a kid? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Into... Love Little uh, House on the Prairie. Uh, okay. Uh, and it's Maybe you were a prairie that... dog. Maybe then a prairie okay. dog. Maybe, yeah, you can do sure. that. Okay. I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dog. <laughs> Peter, you got to see the, uh, make sure I get this correct, the 12th anniversary reunion concert of Thrill Me, the Leopold and Loeb story. So uh, tell us about Thrill Me. Well, here's the thing. I mean, uh, people are always frustrated when they hear about a play or a musical that was good and it's gone. And I mean, this was a one night concert that Steve Dolganoff, who indeed wrote uh, book music and lyrics for Thrill Me, and Doug Krieger, who's done it a lot. And in fact, uh, both of them appear on the cast album. Uh, even though a wonderful actor named uh, Chris Totten um, um, was uh, very good in the role when he originated it. But um, this is the Leopold and Loeb story, and that doesn't sound like a very logical musical, does it? The music is so hauntingly beautiful, and um, what goes on in this musical is so arresting. Uh, they'll eventually be arrested for what they do, but we're arrested in a different way while watching it because – uh, we're clearly dealing with a homosexual situation. We're clearly dealing with a situation where um, one character uh, is is certainly much more interested in having sex than the other, and the other knows this and uh, uses to manipulate um, – calls him babe when he wants something suddenly that's the magic word i mean if he calls him babe then suddenly the other guy feels loved and oh he'll do anything and anything means just a thrill killing killing for the sake of killing alone just to see what it feels like and uh, they'll eventually pay the price and how it happens that they are caught of course has always been an interesting story Stephen dolgonoff makes it more interesting because he has a theory as to why this happened or at least uh, an explanation. We talked earlier about the fact that uh, Nick Robidoux doesn't give us any explanation. Um, Stephen Dolganoff does. And um, so anyway, yes, it's come and gone. But, but, but here's the thing. This gets produced all over the country. It has been produced, you know, 150 or more times. It had a long, long run. In fact, it might even still be running for all I know in Korea. There for years. So my point is, if Thrill Me turns up in your city, make sure you see it. Because it's it's certainly, as I say, arresting with Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful music and uh, very precise lyrics. So uh, Stephen Dolgodoff is certainly a talent worth watching, and I'm always interested in what he has to do. So uh, I think you should be too. Okay. And uh, finally, you got to see – let me get this correct – Charolais? <laughs> is that yeah. Correct? Yeah. Um, this is um, a romantic triangle um, because um, – Here's um, an Irish woman. Oh, let me start this way. Um, Once again, uh, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know I hate flashbacks. And what happens is a woman comes out looking like Mrs. Lovett. Uh, She actually could play Mrs. Lovett. She has the right size for it. And I mean, Mrs. Lovett in the sense that her um, her apron is full of blood. Okay, 
So we get the impression early on that she has murdered somebody. And um, the story would be far more interesting if they didn't tell us that in advance. Because what's happened is she went to work on a farm. She fell in love with the guy who uh, owns the farm. But he's very much involved with the farm, especially uh, with his pig. Um, uh, Charolais is the name of the pig. And, um, and so... Uh, she really would like his attention, but um, he's very fleeting about it. What's worse is that, indeed, um, his mother doesn't like her at all and sees uh, her as not the man, um, not the woman that uh, she wants her son to, to be involved with. So uh, what could happen when you see blood? I mean, somebody died. I mean, she murdered somebody. And um, I guess the only question is, did she murder the mother or did she murder the pig? It's uh, only 65 minutes long. and It's at 59 East 59th in its upstairs space, its smallest space, which is often used as a cabaret. But this time there are seats there. And um, I, I will say that Noni Stapleton is very good in doing what she's doing. But um, I don't know why she didn't want to keep me uh, she wrote it too i believe and i i don't know why she doesn't want to keep me in suspense as to what's going to happen and why she has to give it away at the beginning that uh, somebody died maybe she feels like the suspense is did did um she kill the pig or did she kill the mother you know um, or did she kill both i i guess there's a, a question there but boy it would have come across as a real bolt of uh, lightning if uh, she hadn't told us in advance and we hadn't seen all that blood all right, and that's uh, Charlay at fifty nine East fifty nine playing through September twenty fourth, and we'll have links to that in the show notes. All right, so before we wrap up for the day, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. This is subscribe like that way. Each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. Google Play has us. Uh, TuneIn has us. Or anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts. Uh, the Stitcher app also plays us. Uh, you can get that for your iPhone or your Android device. And Broadway World Radio plays us Wednesdays at noon, Thursdays at 7 p.m. and Saturdays at 2 p.m. Contact information for Peter and for Jenner for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, the question was, who played a future president in his second Broadway musical and a sitting one in his fourth one? The presidents are, by the way, one and the same. Name the actors and the two shows. Well, it's Ken Howard, who played Thomas Jefferson in 1776 uh, when he wasn't a president. And then uh, in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, <clears throat> the Alan J. Lerner, Leonard Bernstein show that didn't, wasn't around very long at all. He was, again, Thomas Jefferson, as well as many other presidents in the show. So Jeff Valenga was the first to get it, followed by Carrie Winslow, Ron Fassler, Jed Slaughter, Ed Popple, and Mike Meany. So uh, so that was last week's. And um, uh, James, you're going to send a CD to Jeff Valenga, right? So um, I yeah, guess I was just going to say that Ron Fassler was not qualified or was disqualified for his Disqual he, side. He was he was quite qualified. <laughs> he was overqualified, and Ron, overqualified. we love you. We Absolutely, love you, but you, can't, you can't win this one, Ron. No, but anyway, <laughs> because Jeff was the first, so it doesn't yeah. matter. Cause you said you were setting out to the first. Yes. Uh -huh. So uh, so it's Jeff Valenga who lives in Ohio, and uh, I'm Great. sure. He'll get in touch with you and get uh, his address to you. Absolutely. So this week, and speaking of presidents, 
what musical nominated for seven Tonys, a musical, in fact, you could see in New York this upcoming Saturday night, mentions eight presidents in its songs. I don't mean in one song. I mean, over the entire score, you'll hear eight presidents mentioned. The first one, the third one, the seventh one, 16th, 30th, 31st, 33rd, and 34th presidents. Okay, so what musical does that? All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com, and we will let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Janetessa Fox and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.